Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is a podcast where each week I speak with someone in my laboratory, which I call the lab, to talk about their big ideas and how they've launched, shared, and thrived in the digital age. This week is no exception. Someone I greatly look up to named Kevin Kelly is on the podcast for episode number 93. Wanted to thank everyone before I start the show. As you know, I've launched the book, The Influencer Economy, How to Launch Your Idea, Share It with the World, and Thrive in the Digital Age. I'm currently in New York, the lab. I've taken it on the road away from my garage in Los Angeles. As many of you know, that's where I record the show. And I'm going to General Assembly in downtown New York tonight for the book tour. So check us out at InfluencerEconomyBook.com for more information on the book. And if you do buy the book, I would love it if you could leave an Amazon review. It really helps with people discovering the book. And more importantly, I wanted to express sincere gratitude and thanks for everyone who's come on the road for the book tour. I started it about three weeks ago in Los Angeles. I moved up to San Francisco for the tour, went to Washington, D.C. recently, and now I'm in the Big Apple and so psyched for tonight's event. We have 150 people that have RSVP'd. So hopefully you'll be able to listen to those podcasts in the future uh, where I give my talk and do a book signing. Um, moving back into Kevin Kelly. Kevin is the author of The Inevitable, a best-selling book that recently launched, which talks about the future technology resources and forces that are coming um, to all of us to better our lives and he is an inspiring conversationalist because I've read his work for years. He used to be the founding editor of Wired Magazine. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and he's one of the leading thinkers around tech and human beings with the cultural ramifications of how tech affects our lives and how tech will better our lives. And so anyone out there with an idea who wants to thrive and launch it, which is you know the thesis of this show... Kevin uh, brought up an inspiring moment with me where he said the next 30 years, we have so many big ideas that need to get launched that are going to change our lives. And so many of these awesome ideas have not been invented or created yet. So I would leave it to you to buy his book, The Inevitable. Uh, go to InfluencerEconomy.com for all the archives of my past episodes. And thank you so much for listening. Here is Kevin Kelly. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast this week. Very excited to have Kevin Kelly on. And specifically for me, he wrote an article about 1,000 true fans years ago that I will link to in the description, which is a must-read for anyone in marketing or the digital age of content creation. Kevin, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me. So I had the honor of reading The Inevitable, your new book. Uh, which is about understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. And uh, it's a very great read. I was, I was saying to you earlier that I often like to skim through parts of books, but this reminded me of college and high school when I used to read just for the sake of reading. And I was compelled to keep looking at the book and, and digesting it. So wanted to ask a first question is that you, you mentioned at the end of the first chapter that the uh, 30 years ago, since then, and now, all the coolest stuff you don't think has been invented yet. And what do you mean by that? Because you're so excited about the future frontiers of, of the digital age. Yeah, in this book, I, I spent a lot of time trying to extrapolate the current long-term trends that have been operating for 
the past few decades and to extend them into the next two or three decades. And I have my hunches about what will some of the most important technologies be. Among them will be um, AI, artificial intelligence, and VR, virtual reality, which I think are coming on very, very strong and will have influence within the five-year horizon. But um, a lot of it is, of course, um, uncertain, that the, the actual specifics of, in particular, of how these long-term trends come into being are not predictable. But there's one thing that I'm pretty sure about on the horizon of 30 years, and that is, is that the most important product in 30 years that will be the thing that is kind of running people's lives will not have been invented right now. It doesn't exist right now. It has not yet been invented. It will be invented in the next 30 years. And um, so it's basically something that I don't include in the book. And that's just based on, um, you know, her history. Like uh, the web, which is this an amazing thing, uh, did not exist 25 years ago. It was, it was, you know, and it was not really predicted as one of those technologies like nuclear power that did not have a lot of precedent, even in the fictional worlds. So, um, I, I think it's very likely that the, the the major thing in 30 years will not exist right now, and the larger point about that is that that's great news for the people listening to this podcast because it means that you could be the originator, the creator, the inventor, the innovator who comes up with that technology um, and that none of us are late. You're not late. It's great opportunity is all before us. And there's something that to be said for not being late because so many people feel like they're behind. They do. They feel like all the easy stuff has been uh, grabbed and accomplished and all the, the, the low-hanging fruit has all been taken, but this is actually, I think, completely wrong. The low-hanging fruit is, is, is all before us um, in this new territory that doesn't quite exist yet. So the, the Yes, the low-hanging fruit in the existing territory is all done, but the whole point of technological innovation is that it's creating whole new continents before us that will have its own low-hanging fruit. And so um, if you have the right mindset and the right perspective and look forward um, and un are able to unlearn things, um, you'll be able to identify some of these with a lot of work and create these um, products that will become the, the major things in 30 years. And so speaking of the products that you, you work on, you, you know, writing is one of the many pursuits that you have. Someone like yourself, if you're out to dinner or you at a, at a coffee shop you know, or you're at your local pub and you meet someone or someone introduces themselves to you, how do you explain what you're up to with, with your theories and your thinking and, and your writing? That's a good question. I, I have to say I'm very much of a situationalist, and uh, I, I'm involved in enough things that I probably would adapt my identity depending on the circumstances. But um, let's say let's say I met you through a friend, and I said, "Hey, I'm Ryan. I have I have a podcast. I wrote this book. Yeah. I'm an entrepreneur. What do you What are you up to?" 
Yeah. So, um, I, I generally probably describe myself as a packager of ideas. So, so my trade is ideas and my, my, my business is sort of putting them into a form that's easily communicatable and whether that's be a website, a magazine article, a magazine itself, a book, um, um, and that's sort of what I do. And uh, um, I am interested, or the, the domain of kind of stuff I'm interested in is one, you know, future technology, but also I have, I have a cool tool site. So I, I review and recommend and encourage others and edit others to recommend uh, handy, useful things for self empowerment and getting things done. That's called Cool Tools, and I also um, review and mostly watch nonfiction uh, documentaries, mm-hmm. um, and and I have interest in a huge consuming, compulsive interest in Asia. I spent a lot of time there. I'm married, Chinese, um, kids are bilingual. I am making, I'm photographing there. And so I, uh, I also identify as half Asian myself at this point. Um, so, um, so my de- my identity is is I'm multitudes, as Walt Whitman says, and uh, I think we all these days have more than one business card, and um, I think that kind of flexible multiple identity is actually very healthy. Well, it, it's also survival. Because exactly. as you talk about industries are transforming so quickly that if you're not adept to experimenting, putting yourself out there and packaging ideas as you do in different mediums, then ultimately, you know, where are you going to go with your work? Because you've been someone that's done a great job of pioneering their own path. And I think that your stories you know, from your writing show that you think about where we're headed. And why do you think it's important for people listening to the show to be thinking about the future if it doesn't necessarily impact their business or their day-to-day? Well, I think in that last respect, they would be wrong because it absolutely is impacting their their lives. No matter where you are today, um, you are in the process of, of changing, of becoming something else, and you can't escape that, and you, and you can't, I mean, the, even the Amish, whom I have great affinity for and have been reporting on, um, who, who seem from a distance to be, you know, Luddites and um, uh, people who have uh, isolated themselves from change are, are actually changing. They are adopting new technologies, but much slower rate. And uh, if you look at them over time, they they are acquiring more technology uh, um, such as solar panels, uh, such as cell phones, and um, the thing about the Amish though is that they actually have a they, they adopt these in a collective way rather than an individual way, and because it's a collective way, they actually have a a conversation about the criteria, whereas most modern people, not just Americans don't even don't have any criteria by which they adopt new technologies is sort of almost hit or miss 
So change is coming no matter where you are, no matter what business you're in, it is being affected by uh, technology. Uh, all culture, everything is. And so this is, this is inescapable at this moment. So you have to more and more think about where things are going um, because um, we're being affected by that. And even though, even with the help of other books like my, my, my book, um, we still need to, uh, each individually, um, have our own expectations, have our own scenarios, have our own forecast of what's coming in order to be, to be ready to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms as, as these things change. So um, I, I think part of being a modern person today means you have to think about the fact that things are going to change. Um, and then I'm going to pause for a second. Is your microphone cord, is it loose? Because sometimes you're, uh, I'm getting like a little kick in the back mm. of your uh, talking. I don't know, but I'll see if I'll, I'll try to be careful. Yeah, okay, cool. Move. I'm writing a note to, to edit this out. Sure. <laughs> um, all right, yeah, so the the crux of, you know, what I love with, you know, the Influencer Economy podcast is how, you know, I say this is the best time in the world to launch an idea. And it's also a noisy time, but you have to really launch your idea the right way in order to get it seen and heard. And a lot of great ideas don't, experienced the opportunity to see the light of day because they aren't launched properly. And sadly, you know, as Scott Belsky said, there's no meritocracy for ideas and that oftentimes the best idea doesn't always win because it wasn't launched the right way. And so what I loved about your book is that you have um, a section about accessing and you talk about how possession is not as important as it once was and accessing is more important than ever. And that's it's true for companies like Airbnb, and you talk about Uber and a lot of examples. Um, but but let's talk a bit about your belief with startup entrepreneurs and people listening to the podcast here, and how they can launch their ideas. And what's what's the theory behind accessing, and how people can incorporate that into their their idea generation process? Yeah, so I kind of list twelve general trends or movements uh, that will be operating in the next 20, 20 to thirty years, and I've kind of lump them into categories that are that are represented by a verb by actually they're gerunds they're kind of ongoing motions and one of those is this long-term shift from the value and benefits of ownership to the value and benefits of accessing instead of owner so that if you can get access to something instantly anytime anywhere in the world that in many respects that's as good or if not better than owning it and it's better in the sense that if you own something, you have to back it up, store it, clean it, maintain it, upgrade it, etc. Whereas if you're accessing it, you don't have to do all those things. Um, and you uh, are more flexible to try something else, for instance. But that's both a challenge and opportunity for those who are providing this, this service. The the fact that you can access rather than own is useful to entrepreneurs because um, you can get a lot of the services that in the past you might have needed to buy 
Now you can rent, basically, access to these things very quickly in a kind of instant on or off manner. So if you're starting a business, you can outsource almost everything you need to do, kind of the, the uh, supplemental auxiliary functions um, you have access to in the sense that uh, they're available instantly anywhere in the world anytime. And that is you know as good as owning so whether it be uh sharing or having office space or bookkeeping help or benefit uh oversight all these kinds of things um can be outsourced accessed offshored whatever the term is they're 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 all very similar functions where you don't need to buy them you subscribe or you, you get access to and that lowers the the cost the barrier the e uh, increases the ease of getting something complicated done and that goes even to like renting tools to um having things prototyped uh whatever it is there's generally an option somewhere today that um will allow you to access that as a service or a product and um the that re, that that's another uh removal of the barriers to getting something done when you have only a little bit of resources so the barrier to entry to to launch an idea is lower than it's ever is been very 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 low the 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 hurdle that is rising is the fact that because it's so low, there's a lot going on in getting the attention, which is in limited, scarce supply, um, becomes the thing that is most difficult. So um, starting is easy, you know, um, gaining traction is hard and getting harder in that sense. So, it, um, so what we see is this kind of pattern where there's you know, high failure rate because it's very easy to start something, but um, most of the things started don't succeed. I like that. So starting is easy. Gaining traction is the hard part. Right. And so what, when you look at your world now, like you mentioned, you have, you have children and you, you travel to Asia. Like if you, if you were a 20-year-old today, what would you think about the world as far as opportunities go for entrepreneurs? Well, uh, I have some. I I have maybe a very little different take on this. Um, you know, at Wired, um, we did a lot of hiring of folks, and a fair number of the people that we did hire eventually were people were, were students who came in as interns. They were in college, they were working as interns, and they came into Wired, and we liked them, and they were hired, and um, they were often you know, very loyal in that sense, working there for years. And I used to kind of, you know, after hours, sit down, talk to them and chat and stuff. And I would marvel. I would say, you know, it's like, what are you, you're 25 years old, you know, what are you doing working here when um, you should be kind of out, goofing off and wasting time i think when you're 20 <laughs> I, I i i i'm not so sure 
that in your 20s that you should be trying to take over the world. I I think I think there's more long-term value gained by doing things that are higher risk that aren't necessarily trying to build a new empire. And um, I'd say that maybe just because that's my general temperament or whatever, but I, I think um, I, I think that the history of child prodigies is not very encouraging. Um, if you look at people who are very young, who have great talent and or maybe even super talent, but it's hard to sustain that kind of focus um, for the rest of your life because you're likely to need more wider skills. And I think when you're young, this is a time to really try things out. And, you know, there was no better example of that than Steve Jobs and his, you know, talking about the fact that he took calligraphy classes and, and, you know, was doing these kind of very out of the center, off beat, off the beaten track kind of things that later on proved to be essential in what he really wanted to do. And, and so, um, I would encourage anybody 20 year, years old to, um, do something silly, do silly, meaning do something that is, it's sort of like doing basic science in research when you, rather than development. So there, there's, a, um, an essential part of, of science that we fund from the government of doing science that has no obvious practical value. And we do that because we know that eventually this kind of work will become the most essential and practical thing possible. But you can only get there when you drop the requirement that it be useful because in the very beginning it isn't practical. It's just interesting. And so I think uh, what I recommend people in their 20s to do is something that is really, really interesting and really to them and really kind of like compulsive where that, where it seems to other people that they're wasting time rather than being really productive. So I'm a big believer in wasting time and being unproductive in a kind of productive way, a long-term productive way. So, um, Kind of a long-winded way. Yeah, I love that. That was that, actually that, like, that was like, you, you, on the listening end over here. That was very well said. Yeah, it's it's and it's, that was I, that was eloquent. I actually was like looking at myself like introspectively, like, wow, you're right. Like you've simplified. You actually simplified it because oftentimes people say, oh, you need to move and break stuff in your 20s and take risks, but there's more to it. There's more to it than just taking risks because obviously, you know, if, if you're starting a, uh, a business, it's taking risks. But I think what I'm trying to, to, to move away from is this idea of, of it being productive, of it being kind of responsible or – I mean, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of pressure when you're starting to do something with a lot of money. I'm, I, I think 
that you gain more, you kind of postpone, you defer some of the rewards by investing into things that are not obviously productive in the in the beginning. And it's like investing into science, basic science, pure science, before you get into the development age. And so it's sort of like what you want to do when you're 20s is that kind of an investment into the pure science research where you're just you're just being curious about things without any uh requirement that it pay off right away absolutely there's a i 100 percent agree and the whole i never thought about it from a scientific perspective that it's great just to do research and explore for the sake of yeah. research right instead exactly. of having a goal and an outcome that this like oftentimes right. The, the the academic world, there's a ROI component that's factored right. in with just doing research to do it. Yeah, unfortunately, um, there there is that pressure of, of of that. But the the best rewards, I mean, it's like in mathematics, you know, people who are just studying prime numbers. It's like how there's no absolutely no uh, practical payoff for studying prime numbers in the very beginning. But that eventually became the foundation for encryption. And then for a while, encryption itself was just this esoteric study. But then eventually, it, you know, it became crucial to the underpinning of, you know, modern uh, Internet commerce. And so, um, but that was many, many years down the road. And, and when the mathematicians who were first studying it, they were not thinking about that at all. They were just curious about the, the you know, the dynamics of prime numbers. And I think... It was because we kind of funded them or supported them in their curiosity that um, we had this big payoff later. And I think that long-term investment is actually has been difficult, and we're not doing enough of it as a society. And I think um, individually, we should also uh, try and do more of it. And I think you know the the best time to do that is when you're in your twenties. And getting, uh, you know, call, tying it all back together. I used to do a stand-up comedy, so making a callback to the "it's never too late" uh, <laughs> yeah. conversation we had earlier is that equally <laughs> we can, if you're in your 40s, yeah, <laughs> and you have a full-time job and stress of a family, that curiosity can actually be the the kindling to start a fire for something that's bigger. And I would say overwhelmingly for my book research and my podcast. 99% of the people had an itch they wanted to scratch that they were curious about. And I, I never linked it up to that's more of an, a scientific exploration attitude. Mm -hmm. Because in a lot of ways, that mentality is permeating to entrepreneurship and startup culture. Mm -hmm. And people have that job that they want to leave, but they have a curiosity and they start something that they just create for the sake of creating it. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and oftentimes... Um, they should just that should not be kind of like commercialized. And they, I mean, there's lots of, uh, of of a good case where a hobby should remain this area where you can pursue your curiosity for the sake of curiosity. You don't always have to kind of turn it into something later on. It it can just be a field in which you feed that creative um, 
the genesis of creativity is kind of like you know it's like like the place you go to 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 unwind to think differently i mean it's like travel for me that's what travel is one of the ways i one of the reasons i continue to travel is not because i ever expect it to turn into a business or, or a vocation or to make money is simply it is a way to keep my mind nimble it is a way to keep flexible i go there because i'm confronted by otherness which forces me to think in a different way and that is the only thing that it will i mean it'll continue to be that and i go there to to be refreshed in that dimension but it's not ever going to be uh, a business it's always i want it to, to stay in that kind of a way and so lots of those vacations and uh, vocations and hobbies don't necessarily ever have to develop into someone's full-time job. They can just remain as this place where you pursue what's curious. And for you, like you're, you're obviously curious about writing, and why is it important to you to articulate, you know, your work in the inevitable or you know your 1,000 True Fans article? Like, what drives you to communicate these types of philosophies and observations you make? to make it more accessible so other people can can read about what you th you're thinking. I write in order to find out what I'm thinking. I I people are different but for me I don't know what I think about things until I try to write them. And so for writing for me is a way of thinking, a way of me accessing my own thinking. So I I might think I understand something or know something and then when I go to write it I realize that I have no idea. <laughs> and that just just writing it down trying to extract out the essence is so hard because I keep confronting the fact that I don't understand this and so I have to go back and try to understand it better and then I try again to extract out its essence which is how I write and um, I, I still don't understand it so I have to go back again more interviews more reading whatever it is more thinking and until I can say okay now I understand it and and, and I understand it because I wrote it down and it told, when I looked at the words, it told me what it was. And so um, I don't have the idea in my head and then write it. I actually get the idea from reading the words that I wrote. It's kind of really weird in that way. But um, that's why I write. So it's first for me. And then, oh, by the way, it's useful to other people. It's like, okay, I can use that to pay for my, my curiosity. So, you know, the report to myself is what I'm working on, and then, oh, it's useful to other people too. Okay, that's that's sort of a bonus. That's the, that, that, that's the little cycle that, that funds the, the, the effort. Interesting. So then, ultimately, because I, I like to talk a lot, and then I write to organize my thoughts, mm -hmm. which is sort of yeah. similar. But it's similar, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, for me, yeah, some people do it through through talking, and, and that's a very viable way. But but for, for I'm maybe not as much of a talker, and for me, it's it's trying to uh, even when I'm talking, I don't have it. But when I sit down to try and write it in a way that would make sense to someone else, then then I, then it forces me to you know issue words and. There's somehow there's something in my brain that issues the words that I couldn't access any other way, and of course it's not the uh, I'm not necessarily one of those writers who uses a big vocabulary or whatever. But I'm just trying to find the fewest words that actually 
convey this abstract essence that I'm looking for. Well, actually, I mean, your your writing is very accessible. Like to talk about not using big words, and uh, one of my actually just to, again, I'm a comedian. I'll, I'll tie it back to your book and do a callback. Is you, you have a chapter on sharing, and what I loved about your intro to the chapter is you talk about Bill Gates, and he says that uh, people asking for this is years ago. People asking for free software when it was first becoming available, he thought that they were new modern day sort of uh, communists. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So, and now so the whole that, world works with. Exactly. Free. So that, that whole, you know, I mean, this just shows you kind of how far we've traveled um, in the 20 or 30 years, but the, 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 the our whole, I, I, the kind of sh the short version of that is, is, is that we've become much more, um, uh, social oriented and socialistically oriented, communitarian oriented, than uh, even 20 or 30 years ago when the software was much more personal in that sense. Um, and and the open source software that Bill Gates was referring to was seen as sort of subversive in a very, um, I don't know, kind of established way. And so, um, uh, now we kind of understand that one of the great powers that has been unleashed by this communication technology is the ability to collaborate at scale and at speed of um, and in depth in, in ways that were not possible before. Um, and that new collaboration um, has many different varieties and some of them are are very kind of uh uh loosey-goosey new agey uh communistic in a certain sense and others are you know um still organized in a kind of a hierarchical way but all but all these new uh ways to organize and collaborate at the scale of of almost the planet or a billion people um is the source of all these amazing things that we're making, like Wikipedia, that would have not been possible any time in history before. It was just not possible to take a billion people and have them collaborate in a meaningful way in real time. And I think um, uh, that, to me, that excites me because I think that's where we're headed, and again, in this kind of uh, 20 to 30 year horizon, is that we're going to continue keep making these new tools to allow us to share, share work, share entertainment, share passions, share accomplishment um, in ways and at scales and at speeds that were not even conceivable uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I love that. I think that the Wikipedia metaphor is, is perfect because it's this collective wisdom and you, you talk a bit about how there's a at Wired Magazine, it was more of a top-down hierarchy, and you know you were an editor there. And then people talk about the bottom up, you know, where people come and bubble up to the top. But there's there's a lot more of a exchange. Yeah, it's two it's ways. Not just, it's, it's not just one direction right. anymore. It's actually, right. You can't just the bottom will take you a lot farther than you think, but it's not going to go all the way. You have to, you have to. I mean, the, the successful organization. There's not a single. There's not a single shape, but they all entail um, both bits of hierarchical control as well as unloosing 
the the bottom the peer to peer so but you need kind of both to really be effective a complete bottom up chaos chaotic uh decentralized things can do amazing things but even uber has a ceo right so it's it's um uh, we, 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 you need both uh, of these dynamics, and I think that's what we're learning as we make these very, very large decentralized organizations is is how to fine tune these things. And if you're making your own institution or corporation or company, you're going to have you're going to be confronted with these um, dynamics of. Um, empowering the bottom, whether it be your, your customers, have, using them to their fullest uh, creative potential, um, and your employees. And at the same time, uh, having uh, a, a layer that is actually trying to look forward to next year or five years or 10 years in the future, which is often what appropriately should be the... Um, the job, the task for the leadership. Um, so we we do want to have we do want to have aspects of of organizations that are looking forward, and that's um, possible with a complete uh, decentralized peer to peer. That's what the new um, distributed um, organization, the um, the one that run on Ethereum, which is a kind of a blockchain. Uh-huh. Um, thing. So, so they're trying to to use a peer to peer to actually make executive decisions, and that's a worthy experiment. Uh, but it's it's um, it's important that these kind of um, even they can't escape the fact that they have a set of curators, which are another level of hierarchy, and there's 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 only a few people. So, so we we all these successful organizations have to have more. Than one type of of control, they can have decentralized and can have and they need some top-down control at, in some capacity. Yeah, this reminds me of what you're talking about with in, a lot in your book. Is I worked at a company, uh, Machinima.com, as an early employee, and it's a it's a web video uh, network on YouTube around the gaming generation, and we would have Minecraft video gamers and World of Warcraft gamers and Call of Duty gamers would upload their gameplay footage, telling stories, talking through the game, of playing Minecraft. Mm -hmm. And they were making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And some of that, you know, touches on the remix chapter, you know, in your book. But Mm -hmm. but it's just amazing that, like, you give, like, if you're a game maker, they actually, the video game makers, for the most part, they love this. It was free marketing. Because these videos are getting tens and hundreds of millions of views of people playing Call of Duty, which is shareable content that people can, you know, post all over social media, and it's them loving this video game they're playing. And there's something about the ability to collaborate with the top and the bottom and, and mixing it all together that is wonderful. And in in this age now, like your products only become better. Yeah, because I mean, the I, people I, I, can make right. you, they can inform you how to improve what your your bottom line can then take a result from. Right. So one of the messages I preach in the inevitable and other places is I really uh, uh, think that that we are creating whole new continents of opportunity um, today. And while 
you know, we're sharing a lot while we're collaborating a lot. Um, we, we haven't even begun to explore the possible ways in which to share the things that we're making, which the possible ways in which we can decentralize something that is currently centralized. Though we have not explored the ways in which we can turn something that's owned into something that is accessed. This is like, it's huge. We're, we're, we're just, we're just in the day one of the first hour of the, of day one in, in, in kind in, in, uh, in, in, in achieving any of these things, and so um, the 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 problem, of course, is that to make a viable business, you have to kind of take the one adjacent step. I mean, you, you can't be if you're too many steps ahead. That's just as terrible as being twenty steps behind. And so, uh, looking for the appropriate minimal next step is the the challenge for making this work as a business but what i want to emphasize is the reason why we want to look ahead to see where we're going is that you want to take that appropriate minimal step in the right direction and what i'm offering and what, what i think we can collectively discern is the the direction the general direction that we're going which is that we are going to do more sharing we're going to do more collaboration. We're going to be doing more accessing. And if all things equal, if you're headed in those directions, that's a, that's a viable direction. I liked what you said about minimal step. Right. And so you, you, you also mentioned that sometimes people are a couple steps ahead, which is not a good thing either. No. Right. It's be, be, that's a real problem is, is that you're often two or three steps ahead, but, but you can only be one step. You can only be a step away, and you have to be the sort of the, the smallest possible step away that um, gives you a difference, um, but that you're in the right direction, and 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 that's the art of kind of balancing all the trade-offs when you're trying to to, to do something commercially, um, and so. Uh, but if you're just one step away in the wrong direction, that's that doesn't work either. So. Making sure that that single minimal step is in the right direction is the thing that's hard because when you have a business, you'll have so many opportunities. There's so many directions you can go. There's more, I think more businesses fail because they are overwhelmed with opportunities, choices, um, than anything else. And um, uh, being able to kind of focus on that, that minimal step is, is is the real art to to making those startups work and so you mentioned that you know uber still has a ceo right even though they have all these other drivers that are helping right um like how important is that leadership for you think an idea to really thrive it's what essential it's essential and then part of it relates to what i was just saying which is that uh, a, a well-placed startup will be diluged with choices and opportunities and um what the leader is in some ways doing is is making those decisions is saying we could go here 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 and here but we're going to go in this direction here follow me um and uh that's it's sort of like it's only saying we're going to go in this direction and then the rest is self-organized it's all the, the appropriate steps are taken. He doesn't necessarily, he or she doesn't need to say, well, we're going to do, you know, here's the micro decisions. They only need to say, 
this is this is the general direction that we're going, and that's often enough to collapse the possibility space into uh, uh, a, a more um, doable set of choices that then the organization can actually proceed. Um, so it's it's a very high level, but it's terribly essential um, role. And of course, some of those decisions are wrong, and so being able to retreat from those, to to um, overcome the inevitable mistakes and bad choices, is is also part of that leadership role. Because in this in this age of the digital connectivity that we have, it, these organizations are so complex. They and, are, and they're dynamic, and they can. They're change. more like they're more like. I really believe more and more that you you need to have a biological sensibility to understand the, the technium technology organizations today that they are they are like a, a living thing, an organism, and the technology the technium itself is like a, an ecosystem, and um, the the. The, the more we uh, bring, internalize that kind of perspective, I think the, the, the more effective you'll be in getting something done. So um, the way you kind of steer or heal uh, a, a living body is, is not in the kind of mechanical way. You have to kind of take a very holistic, whole systems approach to it where oftentimes very counterintuitive um, uh, uh, actions are necessary um, and so you, you can't kind of do things directly you have to kind of you know little nudges work uh, um, the body itself will heal itself if there are just the appropriate um, small um, you know medicines small doses given um, you, you let the real work be done by the system itself. What's a good example of a company now? You mentioned a lot in the book, but a specific organism that you think is treating itself like a biological uh, I don't know, is it animal? Like how? What would you? Or uh, organism? Or organism? Or, okay. Yeah. So, so um, well, I, I think um, that's a fascinating way to think about it. Yeah. Right. So, the, the, you know, the, the kind of classical ways to think of these as machines, and, and um, you know, there's 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 something wrong, so we'll we'll fix, we'll replace that part, we'll swap that part out, or whatever. But um, the kind of biological model would be um, you you treat this as kind of like an immune system, so maybe you only need to. Uh, uh, elevate the temperature um, uh, in a kind of metaphorical way and let that fever sort of purge the, the system. And so that might be, well, you, you um, change working hours or you, know, you do something kind of in an indirect way um, to alter the environment rather than kind of going it in a direct way as if the parts were separate. And I think people who work in institutions and are good at understand that 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 you know um, it's more than just individual personalities. It's the fact that the system, a company, at the level of the company, has its own kind of agenda and working behavior, and you have to pay attention to 
that level of things, that there is a culture that has for, you know, who knows where it comes from. Sometimes it's deliberate, sometimes it's not, but the culture itself um, has inertia, has momentum, and that you can't just sort of do something without, you know, paying respect or paying attention to that culture because it has uh, it, it has a want, it has a, it has a pressure, and um, you you have to be aware of it. And, and changing that is 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 a slow process. Um, so the, the a lot of the kind of management theory stuff is all based on the fact that that they're that they treat this phenomenon in a real way that they really that companies culture matter and that's why when you're starting one you want to pay a lot of attention to the culture of the company in the beginning because it will if it does succeed and grow it becomes harder to change as you go along and it does make a huge difference and it does affect your ability into what you can do and you mentioned uh we talked in the share phase a little bit earlier to switch back to that. I, I want, before I forget, you mentioned curators throughout the book and a lot of, you know, you talk about filters as well. And, um, could you explain to everyone what a, in your definition, what a curator is? Yeah. So, um, one of the things that, um, we're confronted with, I mean, well, one the, for me, the main thing that technology brings us is is new choices and options and possibilities. And uh, it's an additive process. Technology uses usually adds new ones without taking too many of the old ones away. So, you know, you can still buy vinyl records. You can still buy, you know, wax cylinders for if you wanted to. Right. Player piano rolls. As well as you can buy the newest digital downloads, and so uh, for music we're talking about, and so um, there's even the, the, world world uh, world record day, right? Where yeah, everyone exactly. goes out and buys right. records. And... So, so the, the 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 number of options and opportunities is increasing, and in terms of content, it's increasing exponentially. So the number of new songs written every year, new movies, new books, new products released, new SKUs, these are just all compounding at this fantastic rate and uh to such an degree that even if we gave our full-time attention just to look at them look the look at the list of what was available it would take all our time so we we need are going to rely on um these filters or curators to some ways steer what the only thing that's not increasing in this world of abundance which is our own attention which is fixed and not only is it fixed but we also have to spend it every day we can't we can't uh bank it we can't uh store it up we have to expend our 24 hours every 24 hours and we have no more than that and so this really limited resource um we need technological tools to help us um navigate or, and manage this exponential abundance of stuff that all these startups and all these people and all these creators are creating. And so um, to make that match, to, to find the things that are really suited just for us and um, for us at, that, at this moment in time um, requires uh, new possibilities. And these possibilities are the, the, the tools of filtering, of curation, of of, of matching us with um, 
what it is that we are desire or what we even want to be surprised by. Sometimes it's like we don't know what we want. We want to be surprised, but we want to be surprised in a way that works. And so um, there's a huge opportunity for inventing um, all this kind of stuff um, because, again, we're just at the beginning of that and the amount of choices that we have are going to continue to explode. Um, and the need for satisfying this is going to be increasingly uh, valuable and while the content the price of the content and what we buy the price of the products all those dropping um, we're paying more to to find it to, to to find the right one so in a certain sense I would say like the cost to us of a movie is almost zero and what we're paying Netflix for is really not the movies but the recommendations for those movies they are being the curator in a, in a curious way even though they claim to have everything they're curating by giving us those recommendations steering us with the stars and making all. our life more efficient and easier yeah, they know what they 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 can help us project what we may like. Right, they can, and and again, like the writing. Sometimes you we don't know what we like, and they are become a partner in helping us uh, decide or find out what it is that we like. And so uh, that kind of partnership is also valuable. And as we introduce AI into these kinds of things, um, and particularly as we have AIs that will more personal and learning from us we will be on a journey together we and the ai and the other companies in in kind of a, uh curating your own life in the sense of um uh, we, we will together um figure out and train ourselves and come up with what we like i mean come up with uh, our own our own likes so it's more than just satisfying our likes it's actually helping us to create our likes yeah, I love that. Um, I think that there's just an element here that if we can, it's not automation per se, but it's something about like just letting us passively experience life and then having this smarter technology help us define what we like. Like we don't know necessarily if Netflix will give us the correct recommendations, but in some ways it can help us, like to your point about writing, understand what we don't like. And understand what we don't like and understand what we like. I mean, it's, it's, it's like... Um, we're, you know, when we're young, we're, we're 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 unformed, and we we may not even have likes in certain directions. And part of how we form what we like is by what we're exposed to. And so, um, you know, it's hard to become a country western fan if you've ne never ever heard it. And so, if you uh, he if you're exposed to that kind of music very early on. Um, that can help form your own liking of it, and so um, it's. It, I, I'm I'm advocating this idea that we create ourselves, that we invent ourselves, not just that we find them, but ourselves, but that we invent them, and 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 that part of what this technology is going to be involved in is actually assisting us in inventing ourselves. And so it will have it being AI and other stuff will have a role in actually creating what we like. 
and creating who we are. And so um, we'll have a very deep symbiotic relationship with this stuff as we go on more and more where it is part and parcel of who we are. Yeah, I love that. That's great. I, I mean, this is, I'm, st- I'm digesting that literally right now. I think <laughs> that was almost too profound for me. Um, and I'm also, well, you know, I mean, I mean, uh, I, 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 think, I love talking to people like you and reading your work <laughs> because you, cha- you challenge us to think about things right. that we don't, we don't, uh, when I read a, you know, ESPN.com article on, you know, the Red Sox Yankees game, I'm not getting <laughs> this kind of stimulation. <laughs> yeah. I actually think one of the reasons why we're going to uh, want AI is to help us, uh, to tell us who we are. I mean, it's more, it's a very, very active thing. One of the reasons why I'm very enthusiastic about the arrival of AI among many other reasons is, is that we need AI to actually help us define who we are both individually and as collectively as a species. And so, um, I mean, right now we use other people. We, the reason why we have other people in our lives is to help us find who we are. And, AI is a kind of extension of that, and it will be an accelerant in, in helping us do that. Um, so so uh, that's one of the many reasons why I'm excited by the arrival of AI. Well, we have to talk about a thousand true fans. Well, we have to talk about a thousand true fans. So we have a, a couple minutes at the end, and that that article you wrote is a, it's like a marketer's toolkit. Like you have to you have to read about a thousand true fans if you want to understand how to reach people psychographically on the on the in the digital age. And so I I mention you in my book specifically because I have a chapter on capturing lightning in a bottle, and what I love about your article is that. 1,000 true fans really can apply to entrepreneurs and anyone with an idea if you're trying to build a sustainable business. So I know this is uh, the last minute or so, but looking back at that article, like how, how do you reflect on it and does it still have that, that longevity for it? So let me just summarize the article very quickly if yeah. I can, which is simply that um, it was a, a, an observation and, and, and more of a, of, of a theory than anything else. And the observation was that um, if, if you could use technology, the new technologies of communication that we all are involved in, if you could use that to actually um, have direct contact with your customers, um, and then uh, if you were able to, from that direct contact with your uh, customers, get them to um, purchase everything that you produced. So if we could call those kind of customers true fans in the sense that they would purchase anything that you made in any variety, if you had the box version, if you had the signed version, if you had the paperback, if you were in, in, a, in, in a far state, they would come uh, drive to see you uh, perform um, in every concert that was in 100 miles, whatever it is. If you could find a true fan that would um, purchase and, and take the complete work that you did, 
Um, and if you could give them an average uh, of, you know, a significant average of how much you could sell them in a year, then you could do this, use the math to determine uh, how many you would need. Again, if they had direct contact, you would get the full amount. So if you could get $100 from them, you would keep the $100. So the question would be, if you could get $100 from a true fan in a year, how many fans would you need to support you? And again, if it's directly to you, they're not, they're not intermediated with the studios or labels or publishers. If you have direct contact with a true fan and they can give you $100, then you if you only would need a thousand to get a hundred thousand dollars a year, could and that might work for a lot of people, if that was all that you, if you were a solo act. So it was a mathematical kind of um, speculation that with a thousand true fans, on average giving you a hundred dollars, you could make a living. If not a fortune, you'd make a living. And so um, th then the question was, well. That's a nice theory. Is anybody doing it? And I went out to look to see what it would take. And of course, there's a lot of adjustments to those numbers because if you're more than one person, you're not a solo act, then you have to increase those numbers. If you can't get $100 a year, you have to increase those numbers. And so it was really kind of a rough guide. And I found this was pre-Kickstarter. Uh, uh, pre I found that there were uh, some people who actually were doing that, were soliciting from a small number of fans without the apparatus of uh, of other curators, really, of publishers and things, were making a living. And so my hypothesis was that um, even if those numbers have to be adjusted, the order of magnitude is roughly correct, and that there was examples of people who were doing that. And then along came uh, Kickstarter. There were a couple other pre-Kickstarter um uh, systems that were trying to solicit the money from these true fans. Um, and Kickstarter kind of proved to a certain extent that um, by, again, directly intermating with the fans and having direct contact with them and getting the funds to you directly, that you could do indeed support um, your creative work. And um, since then, I, I think... Uh, it's pretty well accepted that you think in those terms. And I think even if it was 20 or 2,000 uh, or 5,000 or 10,000, it's not a million. And that's the important thing in understanding this is that you don't need a million customers. You you need something that's much more in a, an achievable range and that um, uh, not everybody wants to be in direct contact with the fans as a f almost a full-time job. Um, if you add people, then you can kind of uh, add those numbers, but those numbers are still in, in, in a feasible, achievable range and that you should get away from the idea that you need like a million fans to actually accomplish something. And I think I still would, I still would back that. And I think the, the success of Kickstarter. I've done uh, one campaign, actually two campaigns um, with crowdfunding, and it really shows that um, you don't need that many true fans to actually have a living versus making a fortune. That's great. Yeah, I totally 
read that article and I recommend it. I teach classes in marketing and I always reference it. It's just an interesting way for really, and I know I know specifically you talked about artists, but it's it's a it, I believe it's got a much broader implication for really anyone sharing an idea on the web that wants to figure out if there's an opportunity to not just sustain a community, but to build um, something off of that that could help you with some sort of financial support. Exactly, right. And so there, there's lots of challenges to the idea. One is to identify true fans. The other one is to, to cultivate them, which uh, means that um, instead of just, you know, you, you might want to make the, the your strategy is I'm, we're going to try to make fans into true fans. Rather than trying to get more fans, let's try to make the, the customers that we have and let's try to turn them into true fans, meaning that they'll buy everything, they'll support us 100%. Um, and, and that way we don't need so many of them because we have fewer but higher quality, so to speak, um, customers. And I think um, there's lots of ways to go with the idea of true fans. Of course, besides true fans, there's also this, another ring behind them of kind of people who are fans but not true fans. And so you you need you might need less of those true fans if you could also have another ring of of you know uh, almost true fans let's call them. So I think the the main the main lesson was that you needed to have direct contact and cultivation of your fans itself, and that was what was not possible before. That's the new thing that the technology is allowing us is that you can go directly to them and have a relationship with them directly and that that is very, very powerful because it reduces the number that you need, but it does increase the, 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 the kind of, of energy that you need to devote to them. That's great. I love that. I love that story. Thank you. You're very welcome. Um, it was uh, a real pleasure in conversing with you. Thank you for your interest in my work. Uh, and in the book, The Inevitable, which will be out in about June 6th. And um, I, I really appreciate your, your interest. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for joining us this week on Stories from the Influencer Economy. Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable, is epic. One of uh, the better reads I've uh, actually, one of the better conversations I've I've had with anyone, and the read itself of the book is fantastic. I geeked out at the end. It's really interesting. You have a podcast like myself. I have a platform. I can reach influential people whom I respect. And you notice at the end, I, I told them how I had quoted Kevin Kelly's um, 1,000 True Fans principle in my book. Then I get to talk to the author, and I'm sending him a book, so we'll see what he thinks. But that's something gratifying and anyone who wants to take a risk by launching an idea this is case in point what it's like you get to meet someone who's a hero of yours whose career you would love to scratch the surface of emulating and kevin is a phenomenal person to speak with on the podcast one of the highlights so far if you want to listen to any other highlights uh brad feld the tech stars uh founder is another one uh, from the archives as well as seth godin who's one of my favorite authors who wrote the book uh around the dip and many, many others, and Adam Grant, who wrote Give and Take as well. Some of the better archives you may like if you're listening to, to this podcast for the first time. And especially want to thank everyone who supported me on this tour. I, I can't reiterate that enough. It's I'm, I'm grateful for the, the love and the support 
from podcast listeners to friends from high school and college to my family and my wife, Catherine. I want to dedicate the tour to her. She's been incredibly supportive throughout this process. And I don't think she listens to the podcast very often. She claims to me that she lives the podcast, so she doesn't need to listen to it. So thank you to Catherine. I love you very much. And talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. InfluencerEconomyBook.com and InfluencerEconomy.com for more information. (laughs) 